Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. Uh, let me invite you to find verse 28 in your Bibles, John chapter 16, as we continue to uh, walk through this together. This morning, we're going to finish out what we started last week. We finish our examination of verses 16 to 33 here, uh, which means we essentially finish the farewell discourse this morning. He's going to close it in prayer uh, beginning next week in chapter 17. We got as far last week as verse 27 in this passage, and we saw our Lord preparing, really in a very direct way, preparing his disciples for the next three days that they are about to encounter. And he's telling them here, your pain at losing me is going to be great. Your sorrow is going to be deep, but it won't last for long. It will be temporary. And not just temporary, but in fact, the circumstances that will produce that pain and that sorrow are going to be productive in ways that you can't even imagine now, ways that are going to change everything for you. Those were the two things that we saw, especially last week, with the temporary nature of the pain that is coming, but the productive nature of it. And we pick up there this week in time to see a couple of things unfold here now. We're going to hear how his disciples respond to him in verses 29 and 30. And then we get to hear Jesus' final reply to their words from verse 31 to verse 33. And I hope that you'll notice as we hear this in just a moment, how directly it plays into the confusion clarity realities that Jesus was just talking about, because it's the clarity issue that is exactly what they respond to in what they say. So that's the first thing that we'll do together this morning, is we, we just finish walking through these words that bring this farewell discourse to a close. But the second thing that we'll do after that then is to take what Jesus is preparing them with here, namely the anticipation of short-term suffering that yields eternal fruit. We're going to take that pattern that he's holding out to them and ask how that might inform us about the Christian life in general. In fact, ask how has Christ's apostles taken that very pattern and used it to comfort and equip and encourage his people. Those are the two things we'll do together this morning. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. We'll just read together verses 28 to 33. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And Jesus continues in this way. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. 
verse 29, we hear how the disciples respond to what Jesus has just told them. And you can hear, I think, excitement in their voice, can't you? You can hear a sense of realization, a sense of understanding in the way that they reply as they say, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. We should probably keep in mind that ever since verse 19, Jesus has been answering for them a question that they didn't ask him out loud. You remember that? They had voiced some questions to each other early uh, and obviously not within earshot of him. They have these questions that they're wrestling with in their heart. And yet now he has not only told them, verse 19, what they were wishing in their heart to ask him. He has, he's, he's not just verbalized what they did not verbalize, but he then went ahead and, ex- and responded to it extensively. That's what this entire piece has been. Him replying to them about wrestlings and questionings that they didn't even ask him, but that he knew. That's probably a part, at least, of what's at play in verse 30 when they say now that they now know that he knows all things and doesn't need anyone to question him. They have yet again here been amazed by what Jesus knows and by what he's capable of. And that's something to be thankful for. That's something that's good in what we're hearing here, right? It's easy for us to jump to Jesus' reply to them uh, and to overlook some of the positive of what they're just saying here. It's not as if everything that they're saying here is bad. They get some things right. They're expressing a full confidence in Jesus' knowledge in particular. That's right. That's good. And they don't claim that they understand fully everything that he has told them. They don't say that here. They actually only say that they recognize that he knows all things. Those are good things for them to say. The place where they go wrong is in their estimation of their own understanding their own clarity at this moment. They are showing an increasing clarity regarding Jesus' divine knowledge and origin. It's one thing. They seem to be understanding that more and more. But at the same time, they obviously yet don't have clarity about the divine work that's going to be accomplished. In other words, you could say it this way. They don't yet understand what victory is actually going to look like for Jesus. They may be coming into more clarity as to his divine nature. But the clarity that Jesus has just been promising them that is to come wasn't clarity only about his divine nature, but clarity even about his divine work. Clarity about the purpose of God in sending his son. What he was going to accomplish by means of his son. And they are far too excited here about what they understand if they think that they're currently experiencing the clarity that he has just promised them when he said a day is coming. And that's clearly what they seem to think. Their exclamation in verse 29 repeats both of the key words that Jesus just used in verse 25, the exact words. He had told them there that they have been hearing from him in figures of speech. We talked about that last Sunday. But that Soon they would be spoken to plainly in, in the day that is coming. In verse 29, they use those exact same words as they say. Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. They think the day he is promising them is this one. 
but they're wrong. They're still on a day in which they don't understand, they don't see clearly what God is purposing in His Son, what victory is going to look like as Christ emerges victorious. And so starting in verse 31, this brings us to the second thing that we see together this morning. We hear Jesus' reaction to their reaction. And it is definitely corrective in its tone, isn't it? Jesus answered, do you now believe? Literally, it's just two words. Literally, he just says, you believe? Mm, you believe? And I think it's important for us to understand, because it's clear in what he says here, he's not questioning the presence of saving faith in his disciples. That is not what he's pushing at. He's just said of them in verse 27, that the Father loves them because of their belief in him. What is a belief in Christ that leads the Father to love you? That's saving belief in Christ. He's again about to say in verse 8, down in the next chapter, chapter 17, as he's praying for these men, he will say, I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. He's not questioning saving faith on their part. He's not even speaking to the legitimacy of their faith here. What he's speaking to is the present limitations of their faith as it now stands. They think that they believe with a depth of belief that they simply don't. And in reality, because of the current circumstances, they can't. Their current true belief entails limitations because it's belief in the context of their presently limited understanding. Exactly what Jesus has just been telling them. They're still in the time when they're hearing in figures of speech. They're waiting for a clarity that is going to be brought to them. It's a lack of clarity concerning his work, concerning what victory looks like for God's Messiah. And because they don't understand that work clearly, When the arrest comes here in just a very short amount of time, later this evening, they will panic and they will flee. He asks them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. They can't imagine doing that at this moment. But it's because they can't imagine Jesus ever being in a situation of vulnerability and defeat. The man can raise dead people back to life. What, what, what threat is going to come to him that would ever put them in that place? They can't imagine that that moment would come. And see, this is where it should get for us as we think about them. It should get a little bit complicated for us. Because in a very real sense, the... the the very confidence they have in him that is going to lead them to confusion, there's something right about it, isn't there? They're they're right and they're wrong at the same time. It's amazing how we're capable of that, even in in a particular situation, to be right in some ways and yet to be just dead wrong in others. Is it wrong for them to think that Jesus is unstoppable, undefeatable, That's not wrong, is it? That's right. That confidence in him is correct. That's not their problem. The problem is that they don't yet understand what victory actually looks like for him. 
And so the event of their scattering and their leaving him alone, it does demonstrate a deficiency in them. It demonstrates a weakness. But I think that that the passage and the, the circumstances should lead us to say that it's not a deficiency that Jesus is condemning them for here. It certainly would have been a greater display of strength in them had they not scattered and left him alone. But he's not faulting them for the circumstance. It's what they are right now. They are his sheep. And when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. It's easier to see that connection with this particular circumstance because Matthew and Mark both bring that out for us. Both of them, uh, in their account of this, give us Jesus' words that the disciples scattering from him on that night is going to be the fulfillment of words in Zechariah 13, 7. Both of them, Matthew and Mark, tell us that Jesus said here, You will all fall away from me this night, for it is written, Quote, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now in that image, are the sheep being faulted for their scattering? Not really. What's being brought out is their utter dependency upon their shepherd. And so it is here. Jesus' prediction of their fleeing does reveal a current deficiency in them. That's true. But the greater point is that the path of victory that lies ahead for Christ is a path that he's going to have to walk by himself. We can say that even as we quickly say along with Jesus, yet he was not alone, for the Father was with him always. But this is not a path to victory that his people help him on. He didn't need our help, and in fact, we didn't have help to give him. They didn't have help to give him. One commentator named C.H. Dodd, he made made much of this here. Listen to what he wrote. He said, it is part of the character and genius of the church that regarding its foundation members, the church owed its existence not to their faith, courage, or virtue, but to what Christ had done with them. And this they could never forget. And you can see from the way that this story goes on, goes into the book of Acts, you can see from the men who write the, the epistles, they never did forget this, did they? Their dependency on him, his ability to even tell them beforehand exactly what was going to happen, the truthfulness of all of his words that he used to comfort them. And so in a way, Jesus has brought them, he's brought us now this morning, right back to where we were before the disciples decided to open their mouth and respond to him. He has us again now in a place of settled dependence upon him, a place of waiting on him. And I would encourage us this morning to remember that, because it is a thing that guards us as Christians. My friends, this is exactly how We are described in God's word over and over again. We are a people who are characterized by waiting hopefully for him, longing for him. We're not lazy. We're not inactive. There's much that God is working to accomplish through us, just as there's going to be much that he will accomplish through these disciples. 
But again and again, we are named in Scripture with phrases like, those who long for his appearing, or those who wait on the Lord, or those whose hope is in the Lord. And that's very much where we see him telling them to land in verse 33, isn't it? I have said these things to you. I mean, notice this. In some ways, what he just said to them is very unsettling, isn't it? And so it can be surprising if we don't emphasize the words in me. It can be surprising what he says here. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. It's not the words, it's not the news he just gave them that is peaceful. That's upsetting. But it is driving them to find their peace in him. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. This peace-tribulation relationship is much of what we'll look at in the third part of what we'll see together this morning. But just notice before we go there, that Jesus' reply has the effect of again taking these disciples who are showing again an overly sure uh, sense of of themselves. This has the effect of taking them and bidding them to place their confidence in him. He says, in me you will have peace. In me you will have victory, not because of your overcoming, but because of mine. And in fact, it's interesting. This same John describes a way in 1 John 5.4 in which we participate in this overcoming. He says there, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? End quote. We join our Lord in overcoming the world as our trust is placed upon him. And because of that, I want us to end our time together this morning by noticing something. Leaving this context of John's gospel and noticing something. Here's what we've heard from our Lord in this entire piece as he has concluded his very long now farewell to the disciples. At the end here, what he's told them is prepare yourself for suffering by knowing that it will not last. It will bear fruit. And it will do so in a broad way that reveals to you that what I'm leading you through has not caught me off guard. Someday my purposes will be made clear to you. Wait for me. And in what I am doing, clarity will come. What these men are about to go through, they will need to have heard all of those things. They come into the city expecting a crown, expecting a throne. And the crown of thorns is only hours away. The fact that he equips them like this before any of this takes place, tells them about it, girds them up with these encouragements, it reveals their Lord's authority over their circumstances. Do you see how it does that? He is reigning over the circumstances that they are just about to come to. It reveals that. And it reveals his trustworthiness. 
And this is very important. It reveals his trustworthiness even in moments that we do not understand. And with the time that we have remaining, I would remind us of some of the places that we are told the very same things about the trials that we endure in this life. The very same things are emphasized. That they are temporary. That they are useful in God's hands. And that he is indeed in control over them. Let's go to these three places. The first I'd have you turn to is the book of 2 Corinthians. Find 2 Corinthians 4, 16. This is one of those passages that's so powerful and useful that there may be many in here who have these words memorized. We've certainly seen them, I hope, many times. I trust that it's, hope, it's, it's helpful this morning to hear them again in the context of what we've been seeing in John 16. 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul writes this, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I hope you'll notice as we go to these three different texts that in, in some very specific ways, the same kinds of suffering is not being described. There's a variety of circumstances that he brings up. Notice here that he's not, he's not simply describing the suffering of persecution, for example. He says things here that encompass the inevitable sufferings of this life. Our outer selves wasting away is a very descriptive phrase, isn't it? And it's pretty personal because it's a phrase that's describing what is slowly happening to every one of us in here. And a whole host of sufferings go with that phrase, don't they? The the sheer physical pain of a process of breaking down like this, the pain of lost abilities that we once had and that we see slip away. The pain of the pain of watching things that we've spent our lives building go bad not go how we hoped, fade away, otherwise not last because of that frustrating reality that we live in a place where nothing lasts. There's a lot of pain underneath that phrase of our outer selves wasting away. And Paul begins this passage by saying, we do not lose heart. What reason does he give us for us not losing heart in circumstances like that? The reason that he gives is that there's something that we know amid these sufferings. We know that God is at work. In fact, even working by means of those afflictions. You see verse 17 there, he says, this light momentary affliction, there's temporary for you, is preparing for us something, is being used as an instrument of production and production of something that is eternally significant. 
And based on that knowledge, verse 18, how do Christians live? We live by looking to. That means fixing our eyes upon, fixing our hope upon the things that are unseen instead of the things that are seen. Because, he says, the things that are seen are transient. Again, temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you hear the very same emphases that Jesus comforted them with? And Paul now taking those things and and observing to us that this is in fact what God is doing in all of our lives with the suffering and the difficulties that he brings us. They're not wasted. They're not for nothing. They're not accidents. They're not outside of his sphere of control or authority. They're intentional for good. They're producing something so significant that we will be glad at everything that he has done. We will say on the last day to our God, you do all things well. There are circumstances. I thought before this week, I thought, how on earth could I possibly get through a uh, concept like this that he's bringing us? Um, By God's grace. There are circumstances that we are in, some of us are in right now in this room, that make no sense to us from an earthly perspective. We cannot possibly fathom a reason, something good that would be, sometimes it is very difficult to see. And in those moments, we can take comfort from seeing how the disciples were on that night, knowing they could not even fathom what was about to come. They couldn't imagine it. They couldn't imagine it fitting in God's purposes or plans in any way. And yet on that night, the thing they couldn't see was the very means of their eternal security and rescue. But they couldn't see it. We can take comfort when there are things that we can't see. God knows what he's doing. And so here Paul takes that pattern and that principle and says, understand that this is the pattern that you're living through in your life. Let's move from Paul to Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. With what Peter says here, we see some of the same realities emphasized as before. Peter too stresses that this life's sufferings are temporary, verse 6, for a little while, if necessary. It's also similar in that he points out what God is doing through those experiences. But he's pointing out something different than Paul was just now. Peter points out that God is using our various trials, he says, to purify our faith. That's not the same emphasis that Paul was just making. And he uses here 
the picture of testing something by fire. You put metals in the fire, and they get hot, and the dross is burned away. And what comes out of the fire is greater, right? It's purer than what went in. He says those experiences that they are enduring produce something that brings praise and glory and honor to God. They strengthen our trust in him, our dependency. And in fact, it's amazing how he ends this. He, he, he says that these wind up being a part of the very process God is using to save our souls. Verse 9. What is that? It's a calling to recognize that the suffering that God brings his children through in this life will hurt for a time. The fire analogy is fitting. It will hurt, but it won't have been for nothing. None of it will be wasted. And what it produces will endure forever. It's the very point of the analogy that he's holding out to us here. The third place that we should go is in the same book. You might just turn a page or so. Go to chapter 5 now of 1 Peter. 5 verse 6. I'll read down through verse 10. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Maybe by now you can hear that pattern. You can see it before we even go into it. Peter's words are drawing our minds to two different realities. At the end of what we've just read, verses 8 to 10, he's warning of the devil's attacks. It seems to me he's speaking, if not exclusively, at least most directly, about actual persecution for our faith. And this, he says, verse 10, will be for a little while. And will be followed by God's work of restoring, confirming, strengthening, and establishing them. It brings to my mind the letters to the seven churches in the early chapters of Revelation, where he says to one of the churches, hang on, just be faithful unto death, and the Lord will give you the crown of life. Just be faithful for a little while. That puts life in perspective, doesn't it? To be spoken of in terms like that. So it seems to me at the end of this text, he's really focusing on the suffering of persecution. But above that, at verse 6, he seems to be speaking more broadly before he then narrows down into that. Because he talks about a willing submission to the providential choices that God makes for our lives. This, I think, is crucial for us to understand this morning. Because this is a kind of temptation and a kind of pain 
that, that we don't maybe often speak about. It's not the kind of pain we've already raised. It's, it's, we're not even necessarily talking about the pain of growing old and being sick. We're not talking about persecution. We're talking about something much broader than any of those things. What he says in verse 6 is, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And in context, he's not talking about a hand of judgment or a hand of discipline. He's talking about control. He's talking about the authority by which God brings to us what he wills. Wayne Grudem makes a, such a helpful comment here. I wanted to share this with you. He says, the, therefore, in verse 6, you see it, humble yourselves, therefore, connects this statement with the quotation in verse 5. If God opposes the proud, it is true wisdom to humble oneself before him. Among other things, this will involve bowing to God's wisdom, accepting the twists and turns of his providence, and entrusting all our concerns to him. Though this may well mean personal disadvantage in this life, it is always in the believer's interest to humble himself or herself before God, so that in due time, in due time, he may exalt you. End quote. I think what stood out to me and what he's saying there is this application that what, what we're hearing about from Scripture here is the inevitable twists and turns of the providence of God in our lives. We speak of, when we speak about providence, we're talking about God's control in directing the circumstances that we go through. And the call here is to a humility before the mighty hand of God, before what he would bring us. Even, as Grudem says, even when those twists and turns inevitably mean for us in places personal disadvantage in this life. How much time would it take? What a, what a, what a joke to even imagine we would try to list out the examples of that in our lives. The, the potential places, the places that, uh, that I am going through that you are not. The places and things that you are going through that I will never experience or understand personally. The details of life that have come our way at the hands of our maker. They are so varied, it's impossible to list them all. I tried to think of, of, a, of a scope of these sorts of things. Someone born, I'm, I'm thinking of specific people with each of these. People born with a natural... Um, almost impossible to overcome shyness that meaningfully inflicts them with loneliness in their life. And they look out at others who are so outgoing and for whom relationships come so naturally. Some who are born to a life of poverty that brings lifelong discomforts and limitations. Some are given... Some are given a lifelong desire for children and yet are barren. Some face chronic illness that plagues them day after day for decades and robs the pleasure of life from them. Some
Some endure the pain of losing a child. Some long to be married, and the Lord never brings them a spouse. Some marry and then find their marriage not to be a source of peace and rest that they hoped for, but instead of sadness. Some work all of their life, only to have tragedy ruin them financially, just as they near retirement. We know these situations, don't we? How do we fight the sinful temptation to question God, to rise up against Him in fury? How do we follow the path of wisdom that Peter calls us to here and humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? My friends, we do it because of the pattern that Jesus held out to his disciples on that night. We do it because of our confidence in his knowledge and in his goodness. We do it because he has promised us that in all that he brings us and anything that we might suffer in this life, That while we suffer those things, even sometimes without perceiving his direct purposes, nevertheless, we have heard from him that the trials in this life are not just temporary, but they're in fact being used by God to teach us wonderful things. They're being used by God to make us instruments in his hands to teach others wonderful things, if we're willing to be used by him. They're in fact used by God to teach us and lead us to rest in Him. Not to worship the fleeting pleasures of this life. They're used by God to convince us that we are meant for things. We hunger for things that we will never find satisfaction for in this place. How can He teach us that? By the mighty hand of His good providence. He is producing in us an eternal mindedness. And in so doing, he is preparing for us an eternal glory beyond comparison as he shapes us, tests us in the fire, purifies us, prepares us for things that we can't now even imagine, things for which we must be ready, and we will want to be ready for, but we would never be ready for it if not for this that he brings us now. We can't see it, but he can. He knows. He's preparing us for things beyond this life. Things that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. What God has prepared for those who love him. That's how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 2.9. I suspect we can ask anyone with any amount of age in this room, just how fast does this life go by? What do you suspect their answer will be? It's like that. And what our Lord promises us at the end of John 16 is not a future peace. He says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. We will have peace in him forever. He's not promising us there a future peace. Not a peace that we wait for after life's trials. He's promising us there a present peace as we live in the world. It was an incredible piece of timing this last week. As I was, was finishing up preparations for this morning, I happened to read on the back of one of Candace's books. It's a, I've not read the book, but it's a book by Elizabeth Elliot. 
Just reading the back of it, it was so shockingly relevant to this that I think I'm supposed to share it with you. So I want to share it with you. It said, and maybe you're familiar with Elizabeth Elliot, the, the widow of Jim Elliot, missionary who was killed by those he was witnessing to. Back of the book said this, We live in a world filled with uncertainty. Our lives can change in the blink of an eye with one phone call, one diagnosis, one unexpected event. Caught in our own trials and news cycles, it's tempting to think that the world used to be safer and life used to be simpler, but the truth is it wasn't. We can learn much about patience, perseverance, and trusting God from those who walked the path of life before us. Through the deaths of two husbands, a life of travel and danger, and the struggles of raising her daughter as a single parent, former missionary Elizabeth Elliot clung to the God who never left her side. God provided Elliot with a security that could not have come from relying on the world. And he can do the same for you. End quote. It is because God is that God. The God that Jesus is telling his disciples to lean into, to depend upon wholly in this time of great trial and confusion and suffering that is right at their doorstep. It's because he is that God that our Lord can tell us this morning that amid the very trials that this world has to offer us, we can take courage. It's proper for us to take courage and we can do it. Because we are led always by the one that we are kept safe in always. And my friends, be reminded about him this morning. He has overcome the world. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you together as one body in the name of the one who has overcome the world on our behalf. The one who has faced your righteous anger against sin on our behalf and whose finished work intercedes forever before you on our behalf. To him be the glory. And Father, we ask you, would you give us just such a mind in ourselves? that we would settle in to the conviction that our lives are at your disposal. To be used by you as you will, to put on display your goodness and your faithfulness and your glory. We do long for the day when your son will return and make all wrongs right. But Father, if you call us to finish the race of this life before he comes, then we ask you, cause us to live lives that exhibit peace because of our confidence in you. Help us not to waste our suffering. Help us not to curve in on ourselves amid our trials, but instead to run to your son for shelter and wait with hope and much rejoicing. We bring these things this morning before your throne of mercy, asking in Jesus' name, amen. 
Let me invite you as we move toward closing. Would you stand?